Don't call it a comb back. I'll have hair for years. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, what up, Grab girl? my glasses. I'm out the door. I'm gonna hit this city. Let's Before go. I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Cause when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm talking. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. It's about as frequent as getting beaten up at a Philadelphia Eagle basketball uh, football game. This is the press box. That's the sweetest thing you've said to me this hour. Ed Graney. Well, <gasps> I'm on board with this plane. Not an unattractive man, I suppose. Tyler Bischoff. You think with all that K-pop, that dude would be in a better mood? On ESPN Las Vegas. Yeah, we're here. No one's passed out since uh, the last four days. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's April. It's April. <laughs> Ed, Tyler, and Jared, let's just get to it. The First Bite. Great day for my headphones not to be working. (laughs) How impressive is the Golden Knights' nine-game win streak? What a shock he's not beginning with something else. Well, I'll say this. uh, I will say this. um, I think it's impressive anytime you win nine, nine straight at anything. So, I know the... The counter from people's going to be, look who they play. The Ducks are just absolutely awful, which they are. But you know what? When you win nine straight in pro sports, uh, I'm going to give you a big thumbs up. So I think it's I think it's impressive, man. I think uh, they're really good. I can't wait till Wednesday night because obviously the Avalanche and them are kind of the two teams people want to continue to see play. But I think nine, nine in a row speaks for itself. Yeah, even beating bad teams nine times in a row yeah. is still – there's still a level of impressiveness in that. And in the sport of hockey, it's hard to win nine games in a row, even if you're playing the worst team in the sport all nine times. Like, Hmm. it's a very difficult thing to accomplish. And the Golden Knights have have won nine in a row. It's the longest win streak the Golden Knights have ever had. And they've been extremely good for four seasons now. And it's the tied for the longest uh, winning streak any franchise has had in its first four years in the NHL. It is impressive. There is no doubt about it. It's an impressive nine-game win streak because you just simply don't win nine in a row that often. But there are a couple of things that stick out. Number one, they are playing bad teams. Like Anaheim, Arizona, San Jose, L.A. are not very good. But the interesting part is that their like analytics in this nine-game win streak are basically the same as they've been all year. Uh, like during the nine game win streak, they're only ninth in the NHL in Corsi and fourth in expected goals rate for the entire season. They're fifth in Corsi and sixth in expected goals rate. So there's, there's not really a big difference in their analytics, which suggests they're not really playing much better than they have been the entire season. They're just simply winning these games where that's, you know, hockey's a fluky sport and sometimes you're the dominant team and you still lose the game. So there's not much difference in their actual like numbers behind it. And when you're playing bad teams, you should win them more often than not. And that's what they've been able to do. But to me, the biggest takeaway from the nine-game win streak is, unfortunately, like the majority of the season, we can't really learn much from this. There's not much to take away from this because the Golden Knights, it doesn't matter if they beat Anaheim, Arizona, San Jose, or L.A. a hundred times in a row. That's not what this season is about. That's not going to be a good season if they don't end up winning the Stanley Cup. And that's what like that's been the problem with this regular season is I don't feel like we've been able to learn much about this team because they haven't gotten to play very many good teams. They've played Colorado a lot. Colorado looks to be one of the best teams in hockey. 
So they've gotten that matchup, and Minnesota's look solid. But outside of that, they've beaten up on horrible teams. I know AT&T Sportsnet in their game on Saturday had a graphic that the Golden Knights have the most wins in the NHL against teams with records under 500. They are beating up on awful teams, and that's exactly what this nine-game win streak is, beating up on bad teams. You should do it, and it's a good thing that they have done it, but I just don't think we've actually learned anything as far as the Golden Knights' goals of the season, which is to win the Stanley Cup. No, and and, and I'll take it a step further just out of the uh, Honda division. We don't know, and we've talked about this all year, Tyler, because of how it's set up now with the condensed schedule and the division play, and I guess it's sort of fascinating to see what's going to happen. I mean, I, I think everyone's like waiting for the playoffs now. Let's just see and get out of this Honda division. Carolina. Florida, Tampa, even Pittsburgh and Washington, all the Canadian teams, unless they get to the four, we'll never know. They, they will have not played any of these. That's what makes it, you know, if there's anything exciting about this weird condensed kind of division play only is the unknown and the mystery. If the Golden Knights get to the four, how they will match up with whatever team's there. I kind of think we know how they're matching up with Colorado and Minnesota. Uh, you know, what is a combined 16 games they'll play against those two teams. But that's the interesting part. Now, they have to get there. And again, uh, it, it could be, I mean, let's say, you know, Minnesota could be Minnesota, Colorado. Uh, you know, Minnesota's when I will see who finishes, uh, you know, one, two, three there. But that's the fascinating part. I mean, I think, you know, I think they need to get healthy. We're going to talk in a little bit about, you know, some of their forward issues with injuries. But yeah, I mean, it, it to me, that's the only thing I'm looking forward to because all this other stuff and watching them play bad teams all year. And I, I give them as much credit as you do. They're beating the people they should. You can't take that away from them. Nine in a row, baseball, hockey, basketball, whatever sport you want to throw out there, it's really freaking hard to win nine games in a row. But there's such a mystery now, right? There's such an unknown in terms of how they might match up. And look, it's better that than not, not that way, right? Because if they don't match up with those four, it means they've been eliminated. So that, to me, is the most fascinating part because we have no clue how they would match up in a four against either Toronto or Canadian team or some of those we, we mentioned from the other divisions. It feels a lot like college football, doesn't it? Where yeah, we don't, yeah. I guess in college football, you get some uh, interconference play during the season, but not a lot. And then you get to bowl season and that's where we start claiming that, oh, look at the SEC. They're eight and three in bowl season. Right. Meanwhile, the, right. the Big Ten went you know, two and nine or something like that. And we start making it. That's what it feels like when we get to the the final four in the Stanley Cup playoffs because it's Don't you be- think that's silly in college football also, though? Because leagues pound their chest that they're eight and three and it's kind of a one-game prep. I always thought that's kind of funny. I mean, you always hear the Mountain West do it because they don't get much credit on stuff. So if they're like four and three in bowls, they send out press releases. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> it's good. I mean, good for you, but that's a one-game prep league. And that's why everyone always says, hey, go play in the SEC for nine weeks. I mean, I do sometimes I laugh at that a little on the bowl records. And, you know, look, if the SEC wins eight out of nine, you can still say they're the best conference because of the teams they have in it. But it is pretty funny sometimes when, like, you know, I don't know, pick, like, you know, the big sky went 4-0 and in bowls. Like, okay, you know, but that's the one double-A level, and I don't know what that means. But so are we going to do that for hockey? Like, let's let's hypothetical the Golden Knights this year. They run through the, the West, as we've seen. And let's say they beat the Colorado Avalanche in the second round of the playoffs and they make it to the Final Four. And what happens if they get swept by Tampa Bay? Are we going to look back at this season and say, well, the Golden Knights actually weren't that good. They just beat up on a really bad division. And once they had to play a team from another division, they got swept. 
whether it's true or not, that's what we'll say. If they get swept by anyone in the four, if they, let's say, end up with the best record, now because of the division, I think they have a chance to end up with the best record, the most points, all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, we've both said it. I, I'm sorry, they're, they're, they've built a Stanley Cup caliber team and I think at this point, people think this sounds crazy because they're only in the fourth year, but they're not a, they were never a real expansion team and they've made the playoffs four straight years. So take the expansion and throw it away. That means nothing anymore. That if they don't win the cup, I think they will believe it's not a it's a failure of a season. I think I think internally in that room they will believe that. And they probably should, given what they've done to build this kind of team. But they're, look, they're not the only team who should think that. I would think Tampa Bay might think that. I mean, the way Toronto, Toronto's kind of been scuffling around lately, but I would think they might think that. But yeah, if they go get swept in the four or losing five in the four, I can't believe you'd look back and say that's a successful season, given how good they are. Yeah, no, I, I don't think you can look back and say a success wow. unless they win the Stanley Cup. They, if yeah. they even if they if they lose the Stanley Cup in seven, like that's not a successful season. All right. I, we do need to do. We're not going to do full grades when we get to nine o'clock. I just want to. I just want one grainy's grade. So let's do it right now. Grainy's grades. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Grades, grades. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Grainy's grades. God damn it, I hate Jack Paddock! All right, the only topic for you to grade, Ed, the Anaheim Ducks reverse retro jerseys. Okay, so... I'm now a, uh, well, a very angry and bitter Jersey guy because you've made me one. Um, I'm just ma- making sure I'm grading the right one. It's the blue and the white one. I'm just making sure I'm, I'm grading that one. Blue? The purple? Whatever. I don't know. It's, Turquoise, it's got, whatever. Whatever. The whatever. duck is, cu- the, okay. the duck has okay, the put stick. It this way. Okay, put it this way. Is there a duck and a stick on it? Yes, a full body duck. A plus, pass, pass, pass. A plus. Pass, pass, pass. All right, you know me and jerseys, and I'm going completely against my typical take on jerseys that the simpler the better. I don't want a bunch of nonsense, but this duck is amazing. I'm sorry. It's not like, you know, I just, I just love the duck. Uh, as bad a team as this is, and they are awful, uh, they win this award, the stick in the air. It kind of looks like it could be flurry because one of those, but instead of the stick, you know, you get the glove with the uh, – you know, the, the wingspan saves everyone likes to talk about, even though half the time he doesn't need to do that. Uh, but I'm going to say a big A+. Plus. I love the duck, and I don't like I don't like a lot of stuff on shirts. You know that. But I got to I gotta make an exception here. He's a Jersey guy. He is. He loves them. <laughs> Can't get enough of them. All right. The Anaheim Ducks, as an organization, get an F. F. <laughs> and what it's very... It's, it's very simple here. The reverse retro jersey is solid. It's a fun cartoon on a jersey. I like that jersey. But here's the problem for the Golden Knights. Their green and purple or, or eggplant, whatever you want to call it, their color scheme is phenomenal on the reverse retro. And that's what their color scheme used to be. And they used to have a their primary jersey had the the duck face that the was duck, in like yeah. in a hockey mask with the hockey sticks yeah. crossed behind it. That was a phenomenal logo, and the color scheme was great. 
And for some reason, the Anaheim Ducks decided to undergo a makeover and change their team colors to where now their jerseys are black with orange and gold. And their logo is now a D that's trying to make itself into a webbed foot shape instead of embracing the green and purple and the goofy Anaheim Duck face that's made into a goalie mask. Everything is so much worse than it used to be for the Anaheim Ducks. They get the biggest F I can possibly Aww. give out in this segment. Yeah, because okay. they took they took Fail. such a great color scheme, logo and jersey, and they made it awful with what they wear normally. Reverse retros are good. What they wear on a normal basis, horrific. Okay, so you're, uh, you're saying way too much there because it, 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 it suggests I even know the past. The only thing I know is from the movie. And, uh, and they got I rid love, of that. And they got rid yeah, of Yeah, they got rid of that. Okay. But I still like it because I like anything with a duck on it. The color scheme, see, we're, we're, I'm, I'm somewhat of a Jersey guy. You're an intense, uh, researched, uh, <laughs> sort of strange Jersey guy. I can't go that far with color schemes. Just give me the duck in any kind of fashion and form, and I'm going to give it an A. And they, took it away. The hey. they took it away from you. That's what I'm saying. They took that duck away from you with their stupid rebrand. However, it was like five or six years. I don't know how long ago it was, but they took it away. They went from a great color scheme, great logo, and they took it away. They should just wear the reverse retros all the time because it's better than their current normal jerseys. Their current normal jerseys are terrible. They're, it's it's awful. Well, they're the team's terrible, so they're fitting right in because I team guess stinks. I guess it's worth they they match what their team is doing. They yes. can't be good. They will not be good again until they change full time back to their purple and green jerseys. That's where the Anaheim Ducks need to go. Man, this is a horrible division, isn't it? Like oh, it's just it's, a it's, bad. I was, it's, I was watching the other night, and guy who covers a team, not important who it is, but not from my newspaper, it's someone else. Uh, but I got the, uh, I mean, I just got the text about how brutal this team, I mean, it, they were, they're brutal. I mean, how did these teams, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to think I know these rosters of the ducks for the last four or five years, but I mean, they got really bad fast. You know, when San Jose, put it this way, when San Jose and we've watched them, um, are right now, where are they? San Jose is literally, and this sounds like a lot, but still six points out of a playoff spot. That's all you need to know. Cause they're terrible. I mean, how are they even still like breathing in the playoffs? I mean, you think about that. I mean, you know, and I, you know, I finally have succumbed to the Kings might not make it this year, but um, yeah, it's it's Don't a brutal division. Hope. Again, we give we give the Knights all the kind of credit in the world we do, but that's why I think we're both really looking forward to the playoffs and just just see how good these guys really are. Just to put it in perspective, the the Colorado Avalanche had to go on pause because of COVID, and while that happened. The Golden Knights and the Minnesota Wild, the only other two good teams in the division, are on a seven and a nine game win streak, respectively. Like the other two good teams just dominated the rest of this division while the Avalanche were out because none of those other teams really stand a chance most nights. It's it's horrible how bad. What if this what if Minnesota takes over the two spot and they got to go back to back? Oh, well, games in hand, Dad. You got to pay attention to games in hand. The Avalanche have two to make up on both yeah, the Wild true. and the Gold Knights. Game, right. can't, can't wait to be talking about games in hand and the you're West right. Division standings this week yes. in the season. All right, coming up next, Dana White is really, really mad at Adam Hill. This one in the air, deep to left field, Pollock at the wall, it's going to go. A leadoff home run for Fernando. And Tatis hits his third home run of the series. Padres jump in front, one to nothing, right off the bat. 
Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas Studios, this is The Press Box with Grady and Bischoff. We are going to have a copy of MLB The Show to give away a little bit later. That might be the only way the Dodgers can go a game without giving up Fernando Tatis is if you do it in MLB The Show. So stay tuned for that. We also, coming up later, a Golden Knights jersey that we will give away and another free haircut. So plenty to give away. Make sure you stay tuned. We'll get into the Dodgers and Padres a little bit later, but over the weekend. Adam Hill of the Review Journal wrote a story about UFC having an event in Florida with a lot of fans there, a large capacity crowd in Florida for a UFC event. And Adam Hill wrote a story about this, and his lead for the story was, at least 15,000 people are willing to risk permanent damage or death to attend a live sporting event again. Dana White wasn't too happy about this, and he tweeted out, Hey, Las Vegas, this is our piece of bleep local newspaper. Through the entire pandemic, we didn't lay off a single employee. We worked with governmental agencies in Nevada and around the world to put on every event safely, and we chose to bring our biggest fight of the year with Conor McGregor back to town July 10th to help relaunch the city. Yet this is how the Las Vegas Review-Journal shows its support for a true local business. And then, after the fights on Saturday, Dana White had this to say. On, on the review journal today i went in on the review journal and let me say this to you guys I, I think a lot of us here like adam hill and are friends with adam hill and uh, i did not say adam hill right because i know that you all have arrogant smug editors uh you know uh pompous ass editors who write your headlines for you sometimes and you know some of the other bull that goes in there and uh, it, it just pissed me off that the day of the fight to read that in my own hometown newspaper, the Las Vegas Review Journal. Um, dirty. I thought it was dirty. I thought it was a low blow. And uh, you know, listen, at the end of the day, people can write whatever they want. So can I. <laughs> so, Ed, there, there are two parts of this that I find to be... Um, I don't know, strange from Dana White's side, because first off, Adam Hill's story and that very first sentence about 15,000 people willing to risk their lives to go to a UFC event, that's the disclaimer from the back of a UFC ticket. Like the words Adam Hill wrote are the words that UFC wrote, the words that the UFC used to avoid getting sued. Like Dana White is mad that someone else would use his, his company's words in a story about his company and that's hilarious to me that he would be mad about that. And then the second part is that Dana White clearly did not read the story. He read one sentence, lost his temper, and flipped out. Because Adam Hill's story was about the UFC hosting a sporting event with a large crowd and how high the demand was for UFC tickets and how UFC worked with Florida, the state of Florida, to make it happen. It's not a negative story about UFC, but Dana White chose not to read beyond one sentence and got mad about it. Okay, so I'll preface this with this, and you probably know where I'm going. I have absolutely no comment about Dana White. I won't comment <laughs> on what he says. I won't comment about anything he tweets. Uh, I have zero comment about Dana White. I will say this. You, you're exactly right that the disclaimer on the back of the ticket is exactly what Adam wrote. And again, 
I'm, I'm not going to this, and I'm certainly not going to Dana White. All I know is this. If you put the roster of our writers up against anyone anywhere, I want you to show me someone that works harder, does more than Adam Hill. If you look at his bylines, the different things he covers, uh, the amount of work he puts in, you know, he covers UFC because he loves UFC. Um, you know, I tell you all the time about interest and stories at our paper and, you know, what kind of gets more interest. I don't think anyone out there would be shocked that the Raiders get the most interest. I mean, there's no shock in that. Um, I've told you this before. I could write that John Gruden just tied his shoes. It might be the most read thing of the paper. I'm, and I'm serious about that. I'm absolutely serious about that's how much the Raiders get at our paper and TV and everywhere. So, but I will say this, and I'll, I'll say it again. And, and you look, yeah, and he's a colleague and a, and a really good friend of mine. But I know papers, and I know what people do around the country, and I want people to show me anyone who works harder than Adam Hill. So I'm going to leave it at that. I have no comment on Dana White. I have no comment on what Dana White thinks of our newspaper. Um, he, he has a form like all of us have a form. You and I have a form right now. I have a form as a columnist. He has you know 5 million followers on Twitter. He obviously has a huge form, a huge following. But I'll leave it at that. That disclaimer on the back of that ticket said what he wrote, and that's all there is to it. Poor Adam Hill. At least Adam Hill got name dropped there, though. Adam Hill's big time now, getting name dropped by Dana White in the press conference. What do you guys send to Adam Hill next? Yeah, I, I just enjoy. Um, when do I see him next? No, no. Where are you guys? Send? Did he go to Florida for this? No, no, he he did not. No, I mean, again, we I'll, Adam Hill. You know, our USC coverage is based on Adam Hill, and not only is he an expert in it, obviously, he knows as well as anyone, but it's one of his passions. He loves the UFC in terms of covering it. No one has covered it. Again, you have Brett from ESPN. I, I'm not going to pretend to know all the bloggers for USC. I know they have a lot of them. I don't I don't read. I, I, you know, I'm always truthful about what I read and what I don't. I don't read a lot of USC, but I know there's a lot of bloggers from the events I've been to. But Brett Okamoto from ESPN, and then there's Adam Hill, because Adam Hill covered it from its beginning. You know, people forget about UFC in the beginning, you know, those guys bought it for $2 million. They had to, They needed people like Adam Hill to bring it to the mainstream with Liddell and all those guys. They needed local local news because, you know, we know the John McCain comments. We know the political comments about UFC when it first started out. That's when Adam Hill, Steve Cofield, Brett Okamoto, that's when those guys were the ones actually talking about UFC, when no one else was talking about UFC. And everyone thought, oh, it was a barbaric. All the crazy stuff where you and I remember what they said about UFC. Adam Hill's been there since the beginning. Adam Hill and Brett are probably the two and a few more that I'm missing because I don't know uh, blogs, but they're the two most prominent guys in the very beginning, along with Cofield, who talked about it and who brought it maybe into the mainstream. So you're not anyone who says anything about Adam Hill comparative to the UFC, you know, in any other than a positive light just hasn't been paying attention for a decade. All right. Coming up next, Sam Gordon joins the show. I want to say something about that because I think it's important. You know, he did it in the first I didn't see it because I was paying attention to doing my job. And then he did it again when he homered off me again later in the game. Their dugout was doing it. And I, I like it. I, I think that pitchers who have that done to them and react by throwing at people or, you know, getting upset and hitting people or whatever, I think it's pretty soft. If you give up a homer, a guy should celebrate it, you know. He, it's hard to hit in the big leagues. I'm all for it, and I think it's it's important that you know the game moves in that direction, and we stop throwing at people because they celebrated having some success on the field. You're sitting in the press box with Granny and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Granny and Bischoff underscore Tyler.
Joining let me ask us you something, now. Tyler. Tyler, oh, before we get to our guest, let me ask you something. Uh, I know he's passed on, but does Jared have a Tommy Lasorda quote from over the weekend? <laughs> nope. Only Padres quotes from now on. No more Dodgers. Um, joining us now is Sam have... Gordon. Sam, how are you today? I do have one more. Hello, Sam. <laughs> What's up, fellas? How you guys doing? I, I'm spectacular. I'm not doing that. very well. <laughs> um. So Sam, you're you're going to Cleveland for the NFL draft. Do you, like, do you know where? Like, where do you get to watch the draft from? Will you be able to actually like see people on stage? Or are you going to be locked in a room somewhere? Yeah, as far as I know, I think it's a like a media room uh, or media area at the draft. Now I'm not exactly sure what that looks like, but I know you know we are going to be in relatively close proximity to the draft. I think you know, given the the, the still the presence of the coronavirus pandemic, there there is going to be you know, some of the distance stuff. And I think a lot of the interviews are virtual, but it's, you know, I actually got out here over the weekend and um, it's still cool to be a part of, right? I mean, the, you could tell just, I get off the plane and there's banners all over the airport, you know, draft 2020, uh, draft 2021 in Cleveland. So even though it, it's going to look a little different this year, it's not completely virtual like last year. It's going to look a little different this year. I think there's still a lot of energy in town and it, it's cool to, to have the opportunity to be a part of it. And, and it's very, obviously a very unique event. So Grateful to be here, and whatever access we get is, is whatever access we get, and we'll, uh, we'll be adaptable and roll with it. Yeah, uh, I, I assume, Sam, and I know Heidi's with you, uh, you're going to also take a look at or get a sense of, uh, and it's different cities, obviously, I'm, you know, that's no uh, surprise, but next year the draft comes back to Vegas. There have been word here in Vegas that it's going to be exactly what they thought it was going to be last time with the Bellagio Fountains and the Link and all that. So we try to get a sense back there next year of what we might see in terms of a pandemic draft or a pandemic world. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for sure. And that's, you know, I think part of the reason I'm out here is to try and kind of capture what having a, you know, having a draft means to the city. And I know even though that, there, you know, again, the pandemic is still present, there is a lot of community engagement going on here, and that's what we're going to learn a little bit more about throughout the course of the week. I know the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is involved and is partnering with the league to, to, to help promote the draft, the, the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, where I'll be heading actually this afternoon to go check out to see some of the Raiders stuff there. So uh, they're, they're, it's not just, yeah, it's an NFL event and it's a draft event, but it's, it's so much more than that. And I can already tell just about by being here a couple of days, it's an event, it's a, it's a city showcase. It's an opportunity for Cleveland to showcase, you know, what it's like as a sports city, what this market is like, what sports in, in the communities like here. And when Vegas gets to draft next year, it's going to have the opportunity to do the exact same thing. And, you know, Vegas is still obviously very new as an NFL market. And I don't think we really got the chance to kind of completely show that off because of the pandemic and because of the restrictions on attendance and things like that at Allegiant Stadium. So um, definitely excited to be here. And um, I think the draft, I mean, you know, we know how Vegas is now. It's going to be awesome next year, too. So. Hopefully, uh, hopefully by that point next season, everything's going to be back to normal. And, uh, and then by the time the draft rolls around, we'll, we'll be able to give the world and the country a full, full Vegas NFL experience and, and really showcase what the city has to offer. So I have a, I have a question for you. I need some, some honesty from you. Before okay. Mike Mayock's press conference last week, did you know who Jared Jones Smith was? No, no, I, I had no idea. <laughs> I, I had, I had no idea, and, that, and I can't imagine you know a whole lot of Raiders fans uh, did either. So that kind of uh, you know that that says a lot in my opinion, but but still nonetheless very interested to see what the Raiders uh, do at seventeen, right? I mean they have a couple of glaring needs. We know about the need of free safety. We know about the need of right tackle. Um, regardless of what Mike Mayock says, I, I think that there are 
um, there are a number of uh, routes they can go. Now, also, what if a, a big-time defensive playmaker falls down to that spot, maybe not necessarily in a position to need? I still think this team is at the point, even though they've made the upgrades they've made on defense, they're still at the point where I think they need all the talent they can get, and uh, especially on that side of the ball. So um, they're going to have options, uh, but I, I, I don't know if uh, – see, you just, said, you just said his name, you know, 10 seconds ago, and I already forgot it. So I, I don't know. If, you know maybe, maybe he is the answer on that offensive line. Maybe not. I'm not sure. We'll find out. <laughs> At Raider fans, I'm not sure Gruden knew who he was talking about. <laughs> who did Mike just say? Is that guy in our room? Uh, do you? And look, in the past, uh, they have we've we've had fun with it because they've just done things. Hello, number four, Cleveland Furl, that everyone kind of passed out with amazement. Said, "Who is that person?" But you know, he's he's you know he's getting better. It appears. But uh, any chance in your mind, or is there always a chance that Mayock or Gruden? would move up or down, and they just can't sit there and do what they should do and just take a right tackle or a safety in a position of need? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, the draft is often unpredictable, and, and so far what we've seen from this regime the past couple of years is unpredictability. And, you know, we saw, you know, Ian Rappaport, uh, NFL Network, report that the Raiders were doing their homework on the quarterbacks. And, uh, <laughs> that was a little, you know, that was I was a little surprised by that, right? Like, do they, do they really need a quarterback? I thought Derek Carr... Um, has, has been pretty good his whole career and was really good last year, especially given the circumstances and given kind of what he had to deal with, you know, not having a defense uh, that could match uh, what he was able to do on the offensive side of the ball. So uh, the, the logic says right tackle, solidify that right side of the offensive line or get a free safety in there that can, that can play with that young secondary and be an anchor in that young secondary that can cover and fit in with what Gus Bradley wants to do with his cover three defense. But, but with these guys, as they've proven over the last couple of years, you never know. You never know what they're going to do. Uh, I think that, I do think they've made improvements throughout the course of the offseason. I do like what they did on the defensive side of the ball. But, again, this team, I think, has a long way to go to be a real contender, um, not, not just in the AFC West, but, but in the NFL in general. And, and they'd be best suited to, to take one of those positions of need and actually try and you know, build out the roster, complete the roster, and then build their, build their depth in later rounds. So uh, it'll be interesting. But to your point, uh, it's, you, you never know. You expect the unexpected with Gruden and Mayock. So – the offseason's not over. Obviously, still have the draft, and there's still some some free agents that are out there. But right now, would you say the Raiders' roster is better or worse than when the season ended? Oh, um, definitely better. Um, and and the reason for that, I think, is is the the way that they address the defensive line with Yannick Ngakwe, uh, a bona fide pass rusher. And I, I, you you look at that Raiders' defense last year, and it was devoid of, of, of a, a player that could make a game changing play. Right? You had some good players. You had some productive players. Uh, I think the, the the individual, some of the individuals were they were obviously better than the sum of the collective parts. Uh, but but adding um, Unique Nagakwe, adding some of those other defensive linemen, now you build depth along that defensive front. And if you can get after the quarterback, I think by just by the what's what's the word the transit tri- the property whatever I'm, I'm trying transitive to property. Here, yes, the transitive property. Yeah, by the by the, by the transitive property, the linebackers get better, the, the the defensive backs get better. There's they don't have to you know spend as much time covering. I think that's going to impact the defense as a whole. Now, with that said, it's certainly not an elite defense by any means. I think far from it. And I think offensively, there are going to be some question marks on the offensive line. Um, you reward the young center, Andre James, with, with that contract. But I think he still has to prove that he can hold it down at a high level. Uh, Trent Brown's obviously gone. You, you do some reshuffling. You still need, like we said, that right tackle. So um, it, that has been a strength of the team for a while. I'm not sure where that offensive line is at at this moment in time. But if they can shore up that offensive line and it can play around the level it has been the past couple of years, um, I think it is a better roster as a whole. But 
Um, still some holes, like I said, still some holes that they have to fill, and, and the draft is a prime opportunity to add depth, to add top-end talent, and to really kind of round out what this team wants to do and solidify its identity moving forward. Uh, I want to touch on one other subject because you cover UNLV basketball. Uh, Kevin Kruger continues to add guys. I think there's still some questions about would a guy or two come back. So where do you see the roster right now? And with these last two or three, what does he have to do, do you think, to actually you know, uh, create a competitive roster next year? Yeah, I mean, I think you take a look at the roster, what they have right now, what, what they added. I think it's a more athletic roster. I think it is a, a more versatile roster, a more kind of a positionless roster. You add some wings, you add some, some forwards that can do different things that are athletic, that are going to be able, I think, to defend. And I think that was you know, clearly a focal point. This team has not been good defensively in quite some time, and you wanted to get the requisite personnel on the roster to, to, to field a competitive defensive team. Now, obviously, they're devoid of scoring. Who, who is going to score the basketball? especially where, where things stand. I, I know um, that there is a push to, to bring Bryce Hamilton back. Uh, the, the, the Rebels are still hoping um, that, that they can convince him to come back and, and play uh, alongside some of these new pieces that they've added. We'll see how that shakes out. Uh, but with that in mind, right now, as it currently stands, uh, there's not a lot of scoring. I, I think Nick Blake is going to need to take a step up. He, he showcased he has the talent and the ability to score. Uh, but it's one thing when you're, you know, a third or fourth option as a freshman to be coming to, to come in and be asked to be the, the focal point on offense. So, uh, they whether whether they can convince Hamilton to come back or not, I think they need another somebody else that can put the ball in the basket. That's proven that they can put the ball in the basket. Uh, I like the addition of Justin Webster from Hawaii. I think he's going to help space the floor. He can shoot and score a little bit. But this is a step up in competition for him um, coming up from Hawaii. And then as far as the other transfers from the. Uh, the Power Five conferences, mostly the Big Twelve, uh, those guys haven't haven't shown that they can that they're scorers or that they're offensive players. Now, I do think there's upside. A lot of four four star recruits, top hundred guys, but um, it's going to be a completely different situation. They're going to be in brand new roles, and there's going to be a lot of adjustments and a lot of moving parts. So, as things stand, again, I think that they're more athletic. There is some upside there, but they still are, are another score away. I think from being uh, a, a real a real presence in the Mountain West this year. Uh, but all things considered, I understand what Kevin Kruger is trying to do, and I think it's a you know a smart way to build out the roster in his first offseason. A lot of these guys have you know two or three years of eligibility, and he wants to build something that can grow and develop over the course of these next couple seasons. Hey Sam, while you're in Cleveland, will you do me a favor? Could you go up to the Cuyahoga River and just like throw a lit match into it? Because it's already caught fire 14 times, and so I figure it's time to get it up to 15. Yeah, yeah, I'll be. I'll make sure uh, I'll be the one responsible for the fire. That'll leave my legacy. Leave my legacy in Cleveland while I'm here. You're right? gonna be the first person on the scene. I will be. I will be. <laughs> well, he is Sam Gordon from the Review Journal. Follow him on Twitter at by Sam Gordon. Uh, thanks, Sam. And if you get arrested in Cleveland, just blame Jared. See you, Sammy. Time. Talk soon. <laughs> See you. All right. Here we go. We're giving away a copy of MLB The Show for Xbox. We're going to take caller number four at 702-364-1100. 702-364-1100 if you'd like to win a copy of MLB The Show for Xbox. It might be the only way the Dodgers can get Fernando Tatis out is if you do it in the show. So caller number four at 702-364-1100. Here it is from Bauer, and reach four, hit in the air to left center field, well struck again. Peters going back again, at the wall, gonna go! Yes, sir. Fernando with his second of the night off of Bauer. Got him in the first, he gets him in the sixth, and the Padres back in front, three to two. 
back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff. Be part of the conversation on the Finley Kia text line at 69187. Finley Kia, come see a Kia on West Sahara. Congratulations to Brian. He won a copy of MLB The Show for Xbox. MLB The Show 21 is out now, and it's for both hardcore and casual baseball gamers. No matter what your play style is, MLB The Show 21 has you covered. Ed, do you think Fernando Tatis is going to hit another home run off the Dodgers today, even though they aren't playing? Unless he plays for the Reds, it's going to be difficult. Uh... (laughs) Not impossible. Yeah, he's you know he's he's good offensively. Kid might actually be a player one day when he learns how to field a ground ball and throw. But uh, yeah, uh, nah, he's he's good, man. I told you in the break. If this was not April, but it was July, the house would have burned down. I would have been in it because I would have struck the match. But uh, uh, I'll go with uh, Dave Roberts, who made several managerial uh, errors again over the weekend. God, God, uh, uh, thank God for him. He's got a good team. But um, uh, Padres played better. And uh, absolutely uh, deserved to win the three of the four. You know that kills me to say, but they played better. And Fernando Tatis is pretty electric. Um, he's he's fun to watch, man. I I uh, can't believe uh, boy the stiff we had going in the ninth or tenth struck him out. Um, the uh, stiff was, we uh, had. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I've got so after a weekend of Tatis hitting five home runs off Dodgers pitching staff. You have to bring up the Tatis struck out in the tenth inning with the bases yeah. loaded, as yeah. if that was the that was the defining moment of the series right there. Yeah. The Tatis struck out once. So, what did you enjoy more? Him hitting a home run off Trevor Bauer and covering his eye to make fun of Trevor Bauer, who tried to pitch during spring training with one eye closed, or did you see Trevor Bauer accuse Fernando Tatis of trying to look back and see what pitch was coming? Well, I I love the fact that Tatis knew it because obviously, yet again, little brother is way too worried about big brother and they were paying attention in the spring training because Trevor Bauer didn't do that against them. So obviously they're reading all about the Dodgers and they're worried about them. Uh, still three out, by the way, 13 and 11. So it's not like they're setting the world on fire. Uh, but here's the other thing. Like, to me, in those situations, then, you know, have a better job doing your signs or, or, or go to different signals. If he's going to peak, he's going to peak. Then you know what? Do, do a better job with your signs. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with that kind of stuff. It's like, that's on you. And it's like Trevor Bauer said afterwards in the home run, you know, I totally agree with him that what are you going to do, throw at the next guy? That's completely stupid as long as it's both ways. So it's lo- as long as Tatis hits the home run and covers his eye. Well, next time, if you go down swinging against him and he does something on the mound, then don't be pissed at him. Like, if it goes both ways, I think that's great for the game and Tatis is great for the game. But if he's peaking, do a better job hiding your signs. Like, you okay. know, it's just, you know, do a better job. On the idea of the batter just simply peeking back to look at the catcher's signs, yeah. what would happen if a guy just completely turned his head around and stared down at the catcher to see what signs was coming? Like, what would happen in the sport of baseball? Would people would people be mad about that? I, like, what would be the response? Well, you know, the they're mad about anything. Yeah, they're mad I mean, about yeah. anything. But like, I I I don't know what like what would the response be if the batter just said I'm just gonna look at the catcher until he gives the sign and then uh, I'm gonna turn around and hit it. Well, I would hope then uh, they wouldn't go with number signs and just do you know regular signs and I and you know that that would I hope they would do that uh, and just say okay figure out when I you know touch the chin twice the chest best or back in the in the right and let's see if, if you know what I'm doing. So I would hope they do that, but I don't think it would get to that. But again. If it did, as, as buffoonery as that would be, then change your signs or change how you give your signs. Like, 
I, I, people like that can't live or can't get out of a different time always considers this stuff like against the rules. It's such nonsense about that. And we're going to get to uh, Mad Bum's No Hitter. Like, and last night I hear Mad Bum say, well, it's been like this since 1989. You know what? It's 2021. Change it. Like, you know, so if back in the day you peaked and a guy hit you in the head the next time, all right, it's not those times anymore. <laughs> Change what you're doing. Like, I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally against people getting mad because you can't do a better job. And I think that's where Trevor Bauer is coming from. Don't grow, you know, now a couple of Tatis just went outside and got this just because he's so dynamic. But if you give up the home run, be better. I, I just, you know, and, and I did. I like what Trevor Brower, Bauer said afterwards. As long as it goes both ways and he can do on the mound what he wants to do after he strikes you out or whatever, then, you know, have some fun. So what are you mad about Dave Roberts for? Oh, this, and you're going to, you're going to laugh because you hate this. You hate it all the time. First of all, runner on second, you're, you're you, you've held them. Runner on second to start the bottom. Move that guy with a bunt. Now, the great thing about Rios is, which is hilarious, and Buster only said this, I almost fell off my couch. Well, those of you thinking he should bunt, he's never had a sack bunt in his career. It's like, what is this guy can't bunt? I mean, like, how much do they pay these guys? And maybe it's like I was talking to my buddy Will last night on texting. Maybe it's just kind of a softball coach, you softball coach in me. It's like it would be easy in, you know, uh, Obviously, a runner on second to start, international tiebreaker. You bunt, you move them, and you score. And I just don't get why major league teams don't do that, especially when all you have to do is score is one. Like, the Padres didn't score, I think, in the 10th. You just have to get the guy in from second. That's all you have to do. You can't put a bunt down and do sack fly. Like, you can't do that. I just it, it, Justin Turner, they didn't have bunt. Now, he grounded up the, the middle to move him, but there's no guarantee he's going to do that, even as good as Justin Turner is this year. That drives me nuts, man. It, it, not Tatis, not the homers. It drives me nuts that they just won't play for the run, especially when all they have to do is score one run. I don't get that. Because you're throwing away an opportunity to actually uh, score the run. Go. Here we go. Throwing away the outs. I knew you were coming back with that. If you, if you have I knew. If, if you have a runner on second with nobody out and you simply yeah. don't bunt and let all three guys hit, if any one of those three get a hit, you score a run. So you have three chances on a hit to score a run. If you bunt... You throw away an out, and what you're getting in return is the chance for a sacrifice fly. So you have one chance at a yeah. sacrifice fly and then one more chance at a hit. Well, you went from having three chances no. to score him to having two chances to score him, all because score, you score want a run. sacrifice fly. Yes. Sacrifice fly, or the infield's obviously in, hit the ball harder to go through. Hit the ball. They're in. They're obviously, the infield's obviously in at that point with one out. They can't play regular. So you got another chance to get one through. I, it drives the thing. I am. I'm telling you, I fell off the chair when this Rios lunatic has never put, put down a bunt. Well, how did the guy? What, what, what's happening with this stuff? You, you can't bunt in the majors anymore. No, you. You. you, you I drive you crazy because I drive you crazy because it drives me nuts when the shift is on. This is this is another thing I know drives you crazy when the shift is on. No one tries to bunt down the third base line and just take your base. Like no hey. one does that. I'm fine with that. If they if their third baseman is playing close to second base and there's nobody on that side of the field and you can put a bunt down and as long as you get it past the pitcher, it's a free single, that's fine. The, the bad part of bunting is not bunting for a hit. It's bunting to purposely give up an out. It's sacrificing oh. yourself because you have a limited number of outs. You only get three every inning. You only get 27 in a nine-inning game. Why would you ever just give those away? Why? It's stupid. I let the guys hit. No, they can actually put it down. Play. Well, I shouldn't say that about Rios, comma, who's never bunted in his life. That guy's he's trying to hit it to Pasadena every night, this guy. He's either all or nothing, this guy, and usually it's nothing. 
drove me. I mean, it just, I couldn't believe when, when Buster only said that, I said, I had to rewind the TV. I'm like, this guy's never bunted as a professional? How is that even possible? They, he's had they great had Kershaw. Why didn't Kershaw up. bunt? Safety squeeze with Kershaw. 